Built Not Born, episode 20. I'm Joe Chicarone. Thank you for joining us. Built Not Born is the podcast where each episode we interview everyday people living remarkable lives. Our guests have made their impact from the boardroom to the battlefield, from the jujitsu mat to the field of medicine. Today's guest is Basil Hafez. Basil Hafez is a professional mixed martial arts fighter living in Denver, Colorado, training out of Factory X MMA. A native of Philadelphia, Basil is a black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu under Phil and Ricardo Miglaris of Balance Studios. Today, Basil and I discuss his journey that took him from the tough streets of Philadelphia into the mixed martial arts cage. We'll discuss his childhood family trips to his father's homeland of Egypt and his mother's homeland of Syria. We'll get into what got him in trouble along the way and how he decided to become a professional fighter. Basil also shares with us what it was like to see his parents fight through and ultimately lose their battle with cancer at way too young an age. Basil tells us the story of his near-death car crash during Hurricane Harvey that put him in the ICU for two weeks and required multiple surgeries he had to overcome to get back into the ring. Basil discusses his journey of being a professional MMA fighter from how he got started to winning the CFFC welterweight championship of the world to losing the title on a split decision and what it's going to take for him to reach his ultimate goal of fighting in the UFC. Basil also shares bits of wisdom he's learned along the way from his fighting coaches, like this gem from coach Mark Montoya of Factory X. If you want to live an elite life, you have to show up elite every day. So thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please hit the subscribe button. We have a bunch of cool interviews like this one to come. Enjoy my conversation with Basil Hafez professional MMA fighter, black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, former CFFC welterweight champion of the world, and one of the toughest dudes you'll ever meet. And remember, life is built, not born. Basil Hafez, welcome to the show. Oh man, appreciate you having me. For the listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, who are you and what do you do? My name is Basil Hafez. I'm a professional MMA fighter, a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt. I'm currently training out of Englewood, Colorado, out of Factory X MMA. Where did you grow up? I was born in Philadelphia. My parents moved us out of the city because we had older cousins that were getting in trouble. They moved us to, to Brookhaven, Chester area, right outside of Philadelphia, which now isn't a great area. It wasn't the greatest then, but it's better than where we were living in Philadelphia. Then eventually moved back to Philadelphia to pursue my MMA career at the age of uh, 18 and have been training ever since. I want to get into <laughs> jujitsu, what you're working on in Denver, your MMA career, but I want to start off all the way back at the beginning. Let's say you're 10 years old and you're sitting down at a family dinner. Who's there? What's going on? Describe the scene for us. 10 years old, man. My mom and dad are there. My brother's there. We're having some amazing... Egyptian food or Syrian food that my mom made, probably some kusamahshi, or there's a lot of things that we would that she would make. Uh, Fasuliotas, which is like peas and carrots and a certain broth with uh, rice, is 
all amazing food from childhood. It's good times, worry-free. And 10 years old, I just was going to Egypt and Syria that summer. So visiting family. What's your first trip like to Egypt and Syria? What are your memories of that? Oh man, I used to go every summer at one point when I was really young. The last I remember is probably like my experience at 10 years old. And man, I just remember such great times with my cousins. This is before the war in Syria and things were a little different in Egypt as well. Things are still good in Egypt, but Syria is a little different in Damascus now. It was such a good time. My cousins, we all, I have such a big family. Our mom is one of 11. My dad is one of 10. They have a lot of brothers and sisters, a lot of aunts and uncles. So it's like each family had such large amounts of children. <laughs> and then each set of kids had another huge amount of kids. And it's just like a little large large family and I love it. And so when I was a kid in Syria and Egypt, they, my cousins always showed me a good time. I'm thinking about flashbacks when we'd be throwing fireworks off of their balcony, <laughs> the guys <laughs> pulling the donkey cart, selling watermelon and fruit, man, traveling, playing basketball early in the morning at parks, going out to hookah bars and, and cafes, just great time, just relaxing, different kind of lifestyle. That sounds amazing. How would you compare, say, a trip to Syria to a trip to Egypt? How would they be different? How would they be the same? So Egypt is uh, a little more like Americanized than Syria and at that time in Damascus. So it's a little different. You go to the mall in Egypt, you go hang out, you can get outdoor street food. You can go to the pyramids, they have pizza huts and McDonald's and KFCs. They have them there. When I was a kid, I remember I went to get a McChicken at a McDonald's there. It was an actual piece of chicken. It was a big chicken breast, like breaded there that day. It tasted amazing. I'm like, yo, this is this is insane. This is not like America at all. <laughs> I love the fast food over there. But yeah, Egypt, Egypt's a good time, man. If you want to go and just experience things. And there's also Alexandria, which I have family from. It's beautiful there. You can go to the Red Sea on the other side. So you have Mediterranean, Alexandria area. And then you have the other side of Egypt, Sherm el-Sheikh, all these really good Egyptian beaches right on the Red Sea. And I remember going there as a kid one time. It was just like the most beautiful place I've seen in my life. I think I had more fun in Syria just because my cousins were like, more around my age at the time. We would go out and just do crazy things, man. Syria was such a good time because you could go, you could spend your day in the city, go, you know, cheap shopping, go to, uh, it's called a place, place called Sout al-Hamadiyya, which is a huge Syrian market. And it's, you could get anything. Think of Canal Street on steroids, but better everything. And then you can get like good, rare ice cream that you can only get there. And like, it ends at the end of it, the, the end of the, the shopping area is actually a mosque. So yeah, it's just a really good experience. And then we would go out to the mountains in Syria and you could go like to dope restaurants and dope areas like in the middle of nowhere. And then it's actually connected where Lebanon is to the Mediterranean, a really nice part. So you get like beaches as well. At one point in Syria, they, we traveled to, uh, it's called Ladia. And Ladia, you can get like the same kind of beaches you see in Italy. It's wow. really, yeah. So it's beautiful places, man. I think people have a different view of these places because of what the on TV and the media, they're beautiful places, man. Obviously, Syria is different now after the war. And I don't think it'll ever be the same. I don't say ever, but in my lifetime. But uh, I hope that one day it flourishes again, has a good economy, and that people can live peaceful lives without war. Two beautiful places. Wow. So I, I, I want to go back soon. I do want to go back. So I could definitely go to Egypt to visit family. Thank you for sharing yeah. that. Of all the great trips, what's the most vivid or powerful memory of your childhood? I, had a, I would say I had a tough... <laughs> tougher childhood more like in, in the household i always uh was a bad kid growing up i got in trouble outside of the house getting fights i was a bad kid just in general growing up i went through a lot of getting kicked out of school i get kicked out of almost every elementary or i got kicked out of middle school high school I, I changed a lot as i got older i got to mature and i lost my parents at my mom at 18 my father at 21 so growing up i was always getting in trouble and they tried their best they were amazing people and, they, and now i look back and i wish i could i could have a conversation with them now i wish i could talk to them now and be like 
I'm sorry for being such a horrible kid growing up, and I know that they would be happy with who I've become. They were such hardworking people. Tell us about your parents. My mom was an English Arabic literature professor at Villanova University, and my father was a mechanical engineer from Cairo, University of Cairo. Wow. They met here in America through a friend. They had a tough life. My, my mom had a great job, but when my father got her pregnant with my brother the first time, he ended up, they ended up, she ended up leaving the university to take care of us, and uh, my father ended up opening up a pizza shop. And I grew up in the pizza business, mechanical engineer and open up a pizza shop. <laughs> yeah. And I grew up in the pizza business my whole life. And it's, it's crazy because they got so far away. Like by the time I grew up, they got so far away from what their degrees were. And like my dad always could, you know, do could build an engine from, from scratch, could take apart an engine. Like he was so good at all the uh, mechanical parts of getting things done. And when we first got our first pizza shop, he built it. He built the whole place out. He got everything in there. I learned a lot from them in that way. I learned a lot in terms of hard work, man. They would go to work every single day. Uh, they wake up and go to work at 10, nine, or 8 a.m. to make the dough and come back at you know 11 o'clock at night. I wouldn't see them most of the day. And that led to me always acting up. Them not being home is an excuse for me to maybe <laughs> steal their car, take their car to go do some stupid stuff, you know, go out with my friends, mess with vandalized shit, steal things. So just doing the stupid things kids do. And get a major ass whooping afterwards. I think the reason I'm just a tough fighter is because my brother, my mom, and my dad beat the crap out of me so much growing up. My brother mainly too. Yeah, he beat the crap out of me. We got in so many fights. They taught me a lot in terms of hard work determination. How did you lose your parents so young? So I lost my parents to both to cancer. Oh, wow. Yeah, my mother to breast, breast cancer and my father to lung cancer. My father smoked his whole life. So it's kind of like, and he beat it before he smoked. He was the Marlboro man. He had <laughs> marble hat, marble bag. You know what I'm saying? When they say, when you send in those carton, yeah. the carton <laughs> coupons that he had, I got pictures of him literally in a full marble outfit. <laughs> <laughs> he was sponsored by marble. And so he smoked his whole life. And he was like a guy who I think I have that where it's effort. If I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it. I don't care. No one's going to, I'm going to flip this table over before I let someone tell me I'm not going to do something. The hardheadedness and greenness from him, my ability to be caring towards situations and want to do charitable causes or want to you know, achieve great things, want to get in the UFC, want to be great fighters, want to challenge myself daily with like hard things comes from my mom because she was such a grinder. My mom mainly had cancer most of my childhood. She had breast cancer. She had a mastectomy. She still had it afterwards and she had to get a double mastectomy. After that, she was remission theory for like maybe two years. And then it came back. And when it came back, it just came back like insane. It came back through breast cancer. Then it went to, I think, liver and went to bone. Then it went to uh -huh. brain. She had it in her whole body and she had it in her whole body. And I'm talking when you have someone you, you like, people know if you like about cancer, when you have it that bad, you're brittle, your bones are just, everything's falling apart. What cancer does, it eats you apart from the inside, right? And destroys your body and destroys everything that makes you live and enjoy life. She would go wake up every single day and go to chemotherapy radiation at 7 a.m go, you know, do that for two, three hours, which for people that do it, it gives you insane nausea, you vomit. Mm -hmm. It's just it's insane. I remember just seeing how she would deal with it. And uh, she would go right from there, just straight to the pizza shop and work a 12 hour shift with my father because the times are tough and we weren't doing so good in the pizza shop. So it's like, it's ebbs and flows with small business. Just seeing that every day, man, that shit, it was, I don't feel like I could ever see myself giving up on something for mm -hmm. any other reason other than I can't physically do it. Like yeah. even when I'm physically dealing with stuff, I'm still going to find a way to do it. That's, that's shown in my fight career. Yeah. I've taken fights when I've still been injured and had, I need knee surgery. I have tears, a, a fractured rib or torn muscles. And I'm just like, fuck it. I'm going in. Maybe it's not the smartest thing, right? Business decision as a fighter. 
but it's something where I need somebody exterior externally be like, yo, this is you shouldn't do this mm-hmm. because in my mind, it's, I'm not going to stop. This mm-hmm. is not enough for you to stop. We, as people, a lot of times get weaker with these situations of knowing our limits because we give up too early. We don't allow ourselves to really condition ourselves with a lot of pain. And and I'm not saying people should deal with pain on a regular basis. That's not what I'm saying. But painful things in terms of like struggles and hard times, hard things to do, things that you don't want to do, doing them over and over again to where you get conditioned. So you're like, okay, I know my limit now. I know what I can handle. So when those things happen that do are supposed to break you, they actually propel you forward more. You know, you think that comes from your parents? I really think so. I think because of everything I saw them experience get up, wake up, go keep going to work. Even times where my mom got real sick. My dad couldn't run the pizza shop on his own. We had to sell the pizza shop. And after we sold the pizza shop, then he got burned on a business deal. And we were flat broke, like welfare broke. And went from being owning a pizza shop and being able to survive and pay bills to like my mom's sick and my dad's unemployed. Things aren't working out. Then my mom passes away and my father, F this, I'm I'm not going to sit here and just keep wilding because he sees that we're watching, me and my older brother are watching him. And then he would go, then he went out on his own and said, I'm going to open up a pizza shop again. And I'm just going to try and make it work. And I'm going to borrow money and I'm going to keep trying to make it work and make it. And he busted his ass even when he got lung cancer the second time, because he still smoked, but I couldn't stop him from smoking. The kind of guy where you tear his cigarette packs up, you just go buy it. You just go buy, keep buying another one. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, not always thank you. He's like, no, you're in trouble. Don't tear my shit up. <laughs> It's not like you would take it in a positive way. Even when he got real sick and my brother was running the pizza shop and I was helping out and my, and my dad was in the hospital, couldn't leave bed care, fighting, doing everything he can, trying to deal with work, trying to deal with stuff as much, like over the phone with bills. And I'm like, dude, stop. My parents always showed the example of working so hard and never having an excuse to, to show up to work, never having an excuse to do what you have to do that day mm-hmm. because there's people that have it worse. And even that's not an excuse. There's always a, a reason why you should show up and not a reason why you shouldn't show up. I saw them do that and I learned that. But the one thing I learned from them in a positive way that I cannot do is not create something where they have to be there every day. I never want to do something that I have to be there every single day. Yeah. On on your Facebook profile on Father's Day, you did a post. I think you wrote this in 2013. You reposted it this Father's Day and it really caught my attention. I'm going to read it to you and you can share your thoughts. You put, in 2013, I lost my father, bodged lung cancer. I may have lost him at a young age, but the pillars that he and my mother built our household on, loyalty, respect, and family will always live on with me. My only goal in life is to make you both proud. Happy Father's Day, today and every day. Wow. Loyalty, respect, family. What else is there? Yeah, man. Family and creating a legacy for your family. Thank you for sharing that. So moving on. Thank you for reading that. (laughs) Sorry, getting me tearing up again. What brought you to jujitsu? Like, how did you go from fighting in the streets to training professionally? It was around the time my mom had passed and I was like always getting in fights growing up. And at that time, I think I got more fights than I got normally because I was just acting out more. My parents getting sick and like barely graduating high school, but I graduated high school and outside of home, I was just saying F it. I was getting drunk with my friends every day. I was smoking blunts every single day. I was literally just partying and finding reasons to to get in fights. Like I would go out and I'd be like, all right, who's going to fuck with me? And then, all right, that guy, fuck with me. Let's go. We're fighting. We're fighting right now. And so I, I think it was my way of acting out because I didn't have an outlet. I was like always bitter towards like my own stupidity in high school of doing things to get kicked out of school to not be able to play sports, to get scholarships, to go. Like I, 
100% because I did play a high level before I got kicked out of school, but I believe I could play D1 football. I believe I could play, I could have wrestled Division One and and created, my, created a really good uh, legacy for myself in wrestling because I was a very good wrestler. Still am a very good wrestler. I started out not understanding wrestling at all. And then when I turned it on and figured it out, I was undefeated, winning uh, JV tournaments as a freshman with se- against seniors, pinning every single person in the division. I definitely believe I would have had a better path if I was able to play sports. But at that time, I was bitter. So then I was like, all right, I'm just going to fight people. I was going to look for fights and just like, whatever. I'm the guy, don't mess with me. That's the kind of mantra I created in myself. And it was stupid. I wouldn't bully people, but I would look for the guy at the party that was the tough guy and I would want to fight. That's the kind of thing I would do. I was like, in my head, I was like the bully's bully, if that makes sense. So, so how did you decide to walk into the martial arts school? You have to put your ego a little bit on the side because when you're like that apex predator thinking you're the baddest guy in the room, it takes yeah. a little bit of humility to walk in and say, whoever you school you walked into way more than me, I'm actually going to pay you to teach me what I don't. No, say. 100%, 100%. The street fights I got in that summer before this before I got this situation happened was one where a guy got injured pretty badly and thankfully didn't, didn't tell the police anything. And I got away with self-defense actually, but self-defense was like my, my, my doorway. <laughs> you open the door. So it's like, I'm going to beat the shit out of you. Know? The guy put his hands on me and then whatever happened, he went in the hospital. My mom passed away July 2nd. That fight happened two weeks before. And then directly a month after my mom had passed, this fight happened down in Seattle, New Jersey. Where a uh, same situation, kid put his hands on me and I reacted self-defense and knocked him out pretty bad. He ended up hitting his head because he was out cold from when I hit him in the first or the second punch. He cracked his head open on the concrete and was out cold really bad. We ran. We ended up getting arrested. At the time, they just processed me because they ended up, there was witnesses. I had blood on me. What I saw, police saw four kids running from the scene of a fight. It was a group of us fighting, eight of them. And we ran. They, they stayed. And when the cops arrested us, I was a witness. I get processed and I'm thinking nothing of it. I'm thinking this is just a street fight. I'm going right back to doing what I'm doing. It's my mindset. I got released at 3 a.m. that night. And as I'm getting released, I'm like ready to get go back to my friends, go back to party, whatever they're doing. Police tell me like, hey, listen, just a heads up. We're releasing you because there's nothing right now other than just the initial charges. And you've been cool. But uh, the kid has really bad damages. You might have court. I'm like, that's fine. Whatever. I'm thinking nothing. I show up the first day of court and they're telling me they've moved it up to, to county court because the kid had a, a fractured skull with brain bleed and fractured orbital and it was like really bad and they don't believe it was just self-defense. So now I'm fighting this thing. I end up with a felony out of it because I couldn't afford a private attorney. My father was sick at the time. He, he was also in debt. I couldn't really get a private attorney. He offered to get one, but I, I already knew how much in debt he was. I went in with a public defender, ended up settling for a fourth degree offense to avoid trial because they were trying to put me in jail. And from that point, I had an epiphany where I was like, I'm done fighting in the street. I think it was one point driving back with my dad after one, the, talking to the public defender and, and figuring out like, this is what I'm realizing. Hey, they're trying to put me in jail. Our best chance is to settle for a fourth degree offense just to shut, just to get out of here without jail time in jersey any degree offense no matter what degree is a felony i didn't know that pa a fourth degree is a misdemeanor so i'm thinking i'm gonna get a misdemeanor but i guess i didn't pay attention to it as much <laughs> now after the hindsight's 2020 so I remember one day we're driving back and i just remember ta- seeing him and seeing how broken he was like driving me back from a court case where I'm about to, they're trying to put me in jail for five to 10 years. And my goal, I'm trying to, my goal was to be, see if the DA would settle for something. And, and I'm like, he just lost his wife. I lost my mom. He's broke. He's he has cancer right now. And he's fucking coming to court with me. And I'm like, 
Um, so in my head, all I could think was, it was like the first time I had my first real epiphany of I'm a piece of shit. That's how I thought of myself. I'm a piece of shit for, to put my father through this and to be able to do this shit after I just lost my mom. And so I think at that point I made a switch to, and that was actually the last street fight I got in 11 years ago. I had one other altercation in the street, but it was a road rage incident where a guy like, you know, came at me and tried to hit me with a wrench and I disabled the situation and didn't throw one punch and he got arrested. So I did good. But haven't had one instance in the street where I punched somebody. So that's good. In movies or books or whatever, there's always that moment that flips the switch where you go, where if someone rises above where they were, there's the moment where they pivot. And that was your moment right there. That was the moment where your dad was grinding. Your actions did not reflect the way you wanted to live your life at that time. How you wanted, how yeah. you wanted to treat your dad, you know, what he was up against. He's grinding and he's taking time to drive you to court. And you realize you at that moment, he deserved better and you were better than that. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think the best way to sum it up, I talked to people that, that have the same problem is, damn, I have to think within myself, I'm not purveying what I want to purvey. I'm not showing... What I truly believe, I, I saw something recently, it was like, a maturity is realizing that people don't give a shit about your excuses. And what that is, to me, it's like, when you show up late and you're like, oh, I didn't mean to be late, but then you're late. And it's like, no, you're late. That's, you have to take accountability for that. It's an excuse to say, I didn't mean to be late. Then you can apply that with anything. I did not mean to do this. You did it. But the simple action of just saying, no, I'm not going to do this. At that moment, I realized, man, I'm not really purveying how I really want to be the man of this household, one of the men in the family. And that's what I think helped make the switch to. That basically was like, okay, now I'm not fighting anymore in the street, but mm -hmm. what am I going to do career-wise? I need to be yeah. a man. I never really wanted to go to college because I was like, oh, I'm not going to do well. Like the Middle Eastern immigrant way, mm -hmm. most immigrant way, go be a doctor, a lawyer or something. If someone asked you at 18 years old what you wanted to be, what would you say? If you told me that I have to go to college, physical therapist, but if you just say whatever you want, it's the same thing since I was a kid. I always wanted to be a pro athlete, which is where I'm at now. I am a pro athlete now. As a kid, I always wanted to be a pro athlete. It was always my thing. I always loved sport. And I feel like sport was a way for me as a troubled adolescent with ADD, ADHD to uh -huh. let out aggression or let out how I feel or to be able to just express myself, right? And yeah. be successful. I was athletic, but I also had all these, you know, back, you know, issues and problems with me and getting in trouble in school. And I feel like sports was my outlet. And so I always had aspirations to be a pro athlete because I aspire. I like pro athletes, I like watching them on TV. I love watching them play. I love watching mm -hmm. an athlete do an insane technique. So if it's a wrestler picking somebody up and slamming them or taking their, taking like their back, like I'll use an example, Gable Stevenson, man, is his Olympic performance, get the gold medal. It's insane. He literally was losing or could have been losing and then ended up turning around and winning. Mm -hmm. In a matter of seven seconds, I've always been enamored by sports and sporting events, different mm -hmm. feats. And so I always wanted to be one of those guys that can do cool things on TV to inspire other kids to do cool things on TV one day. Yeah. <laughs> you, you went from training jujitsu and then you're planning for your first fight. What got me into jujitsu was after I had gotten in trouble with the fight, and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Didn't want to go to college. Didn't really know what I wanted to do in life. My cousins were training at Balance Studios at the time. They were blue belts. And were the ones that basically were telling me in my ear when I would see them, I'm like, hey, man, you should try fighting. You should try jiu-jitsu. And then I got, this is after I got in trouble and they're telling, they're in my ear again, hey, man, you got knockout power. You're an athlete. Like you're in sheer great shape. You're a brick house. Why don't you just go try training jiu-jitsu with us? And I think at this point it was like, I had a felony. I didn't want to go to college. I knew I, like I wouldn't test well in schools. And I also had this thing on my record. So it stopped me from getting a good job. So I was like, you know what? F it. I'll step in the gym with you guys. So the first day I came in on a Sunday open mat and, yeah. uh, and Rick's beating the shit out of a couple guys come in 
And Ricardo McLaurice is there. He's just rolling with somebody, just finished whooping somebody's butt, literally. And like, I'm watching. And then after he, the match is over and the bell rings, my cousin walks me over and he's, hey, Ricardo, this is uh, my cousin Basil. He wants to start training here. And I remember the exact moment Rick looks up, he goes, oh, what's up, man? They just kept kept going. And when, you're, when you are like are being brought in, like in that situation, you expect the guy to be like, yo, what's up, man? I didn't get none of that. I was like, that was so humbling. That was awesome how that first introduction happened. And it was like, nah, I got to come in and prove myself. All right, let's go. That's always been my, my mindset. It's like, I just kind of even coming to Factory X here. These guys don't know me. These guys have been training for a long time. I'm just a newcomer they've never seen in the gym before. So to me, I'm like, I got to prove myself to these guys as well. I got to show up and work hard. I want to be like like Coach uh, Mark Montoya says, if I want to be elite, I have to live elite. I have to have an elite life. Mm-hmm. And I have to show up every day elite. I can't just show up some days elite. I'm not going to be elite one day a week, two days a week. The guys that are elite that you see that are at the pinnacle of their career, or that are just elite in whatever they do, they're elite every single day. There's not a day they are not elite. And it's, that's the mindset I try to have. Yeah, meeting Rick, stepping in there. And then I started at Balance for six weeks, did the six-week basics program, tried to work a deal out with Phil where I could teach classes. I think at the time they had a lot of guys teaching classes and just couldn't really offer me anything. And my cousin at the time was like, hey, listen, uh, there's also another gym if you want to fight, you really want to fight. And I'm like, yeah, I'm head. Like once I was like, I'm showing at the gym. I'm not like, oh, I'm going to train jiu-jitsu and get a job. I'm like, no, I'm going to fight. I wanna, my goal is to show up. I want to do MMA. I want to fight. I want to get better at jiu-jitsu and striking, everything. At the time, okay, I can't afford to come here anymore. So it got to a point like I just couldn't afford to come to balance. And I didn't have income coming in. I was 18 years old after just getting in trouble. So I didn't have a solid job. <laughs> I had to pay rent and I had to pay all these things. I couldn't afford to be a balance. My cousin was like, check out Philadelphia Fight Factory. I'm like, what's that? Philadelphia? <laughs> like, sounds like a generic name. He's like, no, check out Philadelphia Fight Factory. There's a lot of good guys out there. Like Eddie Alvarez, Zach Makovsky, all these other dudes that are uh, top level fighters and guys that I ended up training with in the future anyway, long down the road of balance. Uh, but I was like, oh shit. And I was like, I didn't know that was in, that was right here. I went in one time, I met Michelle Haig, which is Stephen Haig, the guy's the owner, who's the guy who ran the gym. I go in, as I go up, every guy's eyeing me up from the second <laughs> I step in there. I'm like, all right, this is what I fucking need. This kind of, this is, I like, not like I want to go in to a situation where someone's going to try and hurt me, but I like to go into situations where I'm challenged and I need to prove myself because I feel like I always end up flourishing because I know I have passion for things and I know I can show that. And from that day on, I was a Philadelphia Fight Factory fighter. I didn't end up coming back to balance until Fight Factory started to fizzle out because some fighters were leaving. They just, different things were going on. They weren't able to keep the gym going at the time. And uh, I was like cross training back at balance again, because I think Phil was like, come teach classes, come do this. We'll figure it out. My cousin's talking to them and realizing like, I'm serious. And I kept training. And so he got me back in there. Me and Rick ended up hitting off and, and became men- a big mentor for me. Could um, you describe when you would roll with Ricardo? Describe what that's like. So if people don't know, he's what, six, four, six, well, <laughs> Every time you get submitted, it's technically a near-death experience and the person doesn't let go. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. That's the way you think about it. So yeah. yeah, a lot of situations with Rick and near-death experiences. Yeah, first trade, I think I grew into the ability to have good matches with Rick, but the whole beginning of my career was me getting just trashed by Rick, mm-hmm. you know? Um up until close to the black belt, <laughs> it wasn't even, it wasn't fun. It was fun in a weird way. It was fun. It was like, all right, I'm, I'm learning. And then once I got older and grew, it was like, all right, me and Rick could have closer matches where I'm not just getting pummeled in a back alley. And it was, I think that's what also helped me grow, become such a great grappler and a beast on the ground is because I got like Ricardo and Maurice every day I was training with. And guys like Anton Brazim were there. Guys like Tim Williams were there. There's a lot of great grapplers as well that were there on a regular basis. Kyle Hughes was there too. Like a lot of good uh, grapplers from Balance, Balance Affiliates. And we 
had such a great room a lot of times. And it's and other times when the fight team was a real thing, always in some ways ended up fizzling out because some guys would retire or some guys. And it mm-hmm. wasn't really, it was more of they allowed the fight team to be there because they, they had jiu-jitsu was the number one thing. And so they were saying, listen, we're going to allow you guys to, to create a fight team here because you guys need an outlet, an outlet place to train and you need some place to learn as well and get better. And so, you know, I think I was super grateful. We had a couple guys that were, became animals. Some guys retired and moved on. That's what made me end up moving to Colorado. And towards the end, that's what made me move to Factory X. But in the beginning, man, there's so many great memories of so many tough, great guys. And you know, I'm super grateful for being around Ricardo Miglaris and being around, especially Andy Russell. Those two have really mentored me and, and helped me mature to the person I am today. And they have the same morals as me in terms of background as well. And I always talk to Andy whenever I have a problem still to this day. He's like my favorite person to talk to because he's... He gives you, he gives you brute advice and he gives you advice you don't want to hear. And I love that. And it's great that I was able to be around them for early part of my life when I lost my parents because they taught me so much. And I think everyone should have that. I think everyone should try and have someone they can have as a mentor. Don't be afraid to embrace those people and, and be around them because they help you grow. Um, I'm grateful for what I had before to help me get to the point so that I can thrive on my own, but good experiences. I was lucky enough for a couple of years to overlap you and coach Andy Russell's training sessions. And I'm usually pretty focused. Like I try to live in the present moment, like where I am is where I am. And I try to, I'm not thinking about yesterday or tomorrow, but when you guys were training and Andy's dropping his wisdom and you're going at the pads like an animal. Like I had trouble concentrating. Like I would be in an open mat and I'm watching what he's saying to you and how and, and how you're responding. It was like a reality TV show. Like he's dropping wisdom, some sage. And wow, that's great advice. And then you're coming in 90 miles an hour hitting the pads. I'm like, it was really cool to watch. So I, that's, that's something I always remember of the OG balance days um, on uh, Bible yeah, Street. Man. Yeah, that's, that's great good stuff now. Okay. Andy's one of those people, man. I think you could be around for any time. You're going to learn something. You're going to be a better person being around him. Nowhere near the relationship. I would just see him a lot training you. And there was times where I would teach a class and Andy would say, Hey, Joe, come here. And I like, he'd be in the back. I'm like, sure, coach, what's up? And he'd be like, Hey, you taught this move wrong. And he would show me what I didn't do. Right. <laughs> like, here's, you got to go lower or you can't do it this way. The guy's going to knock you out. Like he would, he would just out of the blue pull me to the side and say, oh, yeah. Hey, you got it. You got to do it this way. And I'm like, coach, that Andy, thank you so much, man. I appreciate you. And, and the thing like, is like some people that have ego, right. They can't take that. They can't absorb that and, and use it as a positive. They look at oh, mm-hmm. Who's this guy, man, this guy's in a jar and Ajarn is above a crew. This guy has been doing this for a long time, long, long time. And he's got the most experience in that room. And it's, I'm super, I was super grateful to be around him. I think the whole part, that whole part of my career, because he taught me so, so much. And yeah, man, that's such Andy. He's not going to bite his tongue, man. He's going to say what is on his mind. And I love that. Yeah, you don't hold back. <laughs> no, that's great. That's a great story. He does, it, he does it because he truly just wants to see people do better. And he just wants... He doesn't want any credit. He doesn't want to be in front of cameras. He doesn't want to be in front of the TV. He doesn't want, I've seen him physically avoid, I had to tell him, yo, get in this picture, bro. What do you mean? This is your seminar. That's like, <laughs> you know, it's like, so that's the thing I love about him. And it's, he doesn't change that. He never has. And so some people act some way here, some way there and they have this, and it's tendency. Some people have tendencies, but it's man, Andy's true and true. And he always wanted to be one of the most genuine good dudes. What's it like in the locker room before your very first cage match? What's, do you remember that moment? Oh man, my very first cage match. Oh yeah, I was a fight factory at the time. What's that like? So you're in the locker room. Oh man, it was like I was going to a street fight. <laughs> yeah, okay. Which like, I, was, I feel like I was like going to a cockfight and everyone was throwing money at me. No, I'll say for a while in my career, beginning of my career, it felt like I was in a cockfight. Because mm-hmm. the lights shine on you so bright. And if you're mm-hmm. in a place, it's not lit up well. And it's like 
dark outside of it. You really feel like you're, I don't know if you've seen <laughs> Seinfeld growing up. I was a big mm-hmm. Seinfeld guy and yeah. little, Jer- little Jerry fighting in the cock ring. It was like, <laughs> that, that's what I feel like. I'm like, these guys are throwing money at me and people are shouting. It's like, kill them. Let's fast forward just a little bit here. So at some point you fight for the CFFC welterweight champion. You beat Christian Savoy. Take us through that the day you walk into your title fight. That was definitely a nerve wracking feeling, but I felt super calm and I felt felt super confident in myself that day. And I, and I usually do, I usually do, I pretty much do every single fight. Sometimes the preparation is different. Sometimes I have injuries that I don't really talk about and I have things that I just can go in with. I felt super, super confident that day, man. Super confident that whole fight camp, super confident that uh, fight. And I think I showed that my comfortability on the ground where the fight went. You know, I submitted him in the first round. I, and I feel like I'm still growing. I still am improving every single fight. My last fight, is uh, the fight that I ended up, I won the title that fight. I lost the title the next fight off of a split decision. And I feel like I was completely not in the proper shape for a five-round title fight. And uh, you can watch the fight and say the pace was high and that's why. I think it's partially that, partially a couple other things. I wasn't on my game that night. Either way, it's not an excuse. It's just a, it's a growing point. For me. What was your main learning from that fight? The, the biggest learning experience from that is I have to preserve my energy and fight smarter in the fight, 100%. There's a couple things that I was lazy with, my stance. There's a lot, there's honestly a checklist I can keep going. I really feel like I need to work on. Yep. And especially with my cardio, I wasn't in the proper shape. I know I had trained hard and I was good. I, was, I had torn cartilage in my ribs pretty bad, though I couldn't train without my rib popping in and out again. And that happened two weeks out, away from the fight. And I only got to Colorado four weeks for the fight. So I got two weeks of hard training and then two weeks that I couldn't really train wow. going into that title fight. So even enough, four weeks is not enough because I was not in shape before I came here mm-hmm. the first time. I was not training as much as I, like how we train here now, I could take a fight in a week and I'll be in better shape than I just have for the title fight. I, I think making the switch here was the smartest decision I made in my career so far. And it's a decision I should have made sooner because let's, I'm going to be real about it. Like I had a great, jitsu room right great jitsu training but never really proper mma training i'm an mma fighter not a jiu-jitsu grappler i think i fight that battle in my head a lot where it's i would love to be focusing fully on jiu-jitsu because i have so much passion for jiu-jitsu and i want to be you know competing in adccs and competing against all these great grapplers and putting on insane matches and hitting submissions and flying submissions and doing all these crazy things yeah it's a dream of mine maybe one day after my fight career but i think that I've realized my largest and most, you know, number one focus is to make it to the UFC and then to be able to compete at a high level in the UFC and hopefully win a championship. To me, that took the reins and that took control of my mind. And, and I think I was fighting with that for a while because I was so good at jiu-jitsu. When you're so good at something naturally or just you become good, right? I think I was, I'm going to say... I have a physique that is favors a wrestler slash grappler because of, I mean, I'm Egyptian, Syrian, Middle Eastern. I'm stocky, strong. And when I lift weights, I get stronger. So and when I train, I get stronger. So it's, I definitely have a slight advantage in that, but most athletes have a slight advantage in some way. Some guys are long rangier and they're great athletes and they're in good shape, but we build ourselves up and we work right to be able to become great athletes and great competitors. And so no one's going to become that overnight. And so I think for the longest time, I was staying confident in my grappling. I've had multiple fight camps where I basically just did jiu-jitsu class <laughs> with little gloves. And so that's not a recipe to become a good mixed martial arts fighter. And uh, that's a good recipe if I want to be a grappler who does some fights sometimes. But I think everyone that has stepped into MMA does MMA training on a regular basis. And I never really was doing that. And me being here for just two months, man, I've been missing out on a lot of 
good fight knowledge, fight experience, just becoming a savage on the feet and overall with fighting. I've been missing out on that a lot of my career and I'm super excited for the second half of my career. And you mentioned about your cartilage popping in a couple of injuries. One of the things I find so impressive about your career, the number of injuries you've had and you bounce back from and you keep going. Would you, would you mind speaking about some of the injuries you had? You mentioned about a car accident. You mind speaking about that? Yeah, I appreciate that. appreciate you saying that. Um, I don't think any injury in general should stop you from doing from completing your dreams. Obviously, a bad injury where you can't compete physically, that's a different. But if it's limiting you, you still can do it. You still can find a way. Man, I've had, yeah, I've had six six knee surgeries, an elbow surgery. I've had, that's just the surgeries. And we've been martial arts and jiu-jitsu guys that train. We have constant random fracture your rib. You, t- you, you know, pull this tendon, you, you you know, pull your hamstring and it's, these are all painful injuries and it takes time to heal, but you don't get surgery. So they just go under the, they just go under the rug. But yeah, I think the worst string of injuries in the time I had in my career was 2018 or 20, yeah, 2018. I was getting ready for EBI combat jiu-jitsu, the 20K tournament. And I was super confident that I would win the tournament. I still feel to this day, if you fill the tournament with the same guys that were in it, to this day, I still feel like I would beat every guy in that tournament. We're talking combat jiu-jitsu with strikes. Is something I feel very good with. And so I was excited for that. I was training my ass off. It was probably some of the best shape I've been in other than where I'm at now. So some of the best shape I've been in my life. I was a week and a half away from flying out to, I think it was in LA, to be able to compete or California. And I had a, I had a training session in Jersey I was driving to. We had, I think it was this Hurricane Harvey that was just passing through. They had horrible conditions everywhere for driving. I was driving this pickup truck, which is a rental car. It was a perfect recipe for a disaster. Driving a rental car, uh, pickup truck that had really bad boulder tires on it. Didn't really do anything about it. Didn't think about it. Driving down Jersey, hitting a jug handle exit. Ended up losing control in the rain, tail whipping. And when I ta- when it tail whipped, it just started hydroplaning as soon as it tail whipped. And I my back end hit the high curb and it flipped the truck. I flipped two times into oncoming traffic. I flipped two times and then I landed into oncoming traffic. And then I was hit head on by a car. And so it was basically both cars totaled. I wasn't wearing my seatbelt as well. So it was just a really shitty, I don't know if people say things are meant to happen, but yeah, I don't know the perfect recipe. Because if I think if I was wearing my seatbelt, I would have been able to be fine. I would have been able to compete because I I break fall very well. When it was rolling, I don't know. (laughs) I don't wish this experience upon anyone, but rolling a car is a crazy experience when it happens at the moment. Only thing I remember is when, do you remember Jurassic Park? The first one, yeah. remember when the T with the camera view, uh-huh. <laughs> they're like a back window, and it's a T Rex flipping the the Ford Explorer, uh-huh. and the angles like them just rolling, and they're like rolling inside. This is all I was seeing in my head as I was rolling. I was like, holy shit! Wow. And it just kept rolling, <laughs> and so I actually broke the steering wheel column off of my stomach, which would cause internal bleeding, and then I ended up being in the ICU for two weeks and couldn't really. I had to pull out of the fight. Obviously, I got out of the ICU. That next couple of days was the tournament. <laughs> was the wow. Tournament. Yeah, so I was not, I didn't get doctor clearance. I was still recovering from the internal bleeding yeah. and whatever injuries I had. So then I had a Aruba fight that was an unsanctioned, unofficial fight that I was going to get paid for, get a free trip to Aruba. I was like, why not? <laughs> it was 24th and the accident happened, 24th of November, the accident happened the last day or last weekend of October. So after I get released from the hospital is the fight. And so I don't know how I convinced the people around me to let me do it, but they let me do it. I ended up tearing my knee going into that fight because I was just not in the proper shape, not in fight shape. I couldn't get hit in the stomach off that, all that two week fight camp. 
And I said, F it. I went in, flew over to Aruba, fought, beat the crap out of the guy. And I came back, ended up having surgery, had torn my left knee. I tore tore my right knee. So then I had surgery on my right knee and then I had complications with the surgery. And now I'm talking about a third surgery, but it was a huge process to get the third surgery wow. because yeah, anyone that knows the medical system, like you have to get an x-ray, then an MRI. I ended up seeing three different doctors until I could find one that would operate on my knee. So I ended up finding out that time as well that I have really bad knees. I have full-blown arthritis and bone spurs in both my knees, like full arthritis in my patellars, both my patellars and my both my knees. I don't have any cartilage, no more meniscus in both my knees. I mean, I have arthritis in my hip. I didn't know I had arthritis in my hip. <laughs> I found that out as well. And I guess over time of just beating up my knees and not having cartilage in there and it just got worse. So the third surgery finally happened. They finally cleaned out my knee, got everything fixed. Cause I had, I think when I was going between those doctors, I had issues with my knee locking. So I couldn't even make it through physical therapy. And I think you remember seeing me where I, my knee was like, you're like, yo, you trained. I think one time, I think I saw you at the gym. I was like, you're like, oh, Yo, you trained today? I was like, not anymore. My knee locked. I can't move it. And it's stuck bent. And I just basically am like stuck with a bent knee and I have to lift out of the gym and go home until it unlocks. Wow. And, and so it was bad at one point. Yeah. And so that from that point, uh, I got back to training. I got back. I've been working out extremely hard to build muscle in my legs to be able to not have any more problems. Looking forward. What's your plans for your next fight? Honestly, I haven't even thought about it. I know that I think I'm still contracted to CFFC, so I, I think I have one more fight with CFFC, but I'm just training. I came out here. I had to move my whole life, so I moved my whole life here, which was a process to get settled. You have growing pains when you move somewhere. First month was uh, just getting used to everything. Things are better now. Training is going great. I'm just getting back into the swing of things. I'm on a stride right now. I'm feeling great. My training is going good. I just wanted to come out here really get better before I started thinking about a fight again. Okay. I'm not happy with my last fight whatsoever. Honestly, I'm not happy with like just how I performed. I know I performed, I, I showed heart, but I believe fighting is more than heart. It's about skill and technique. And I feel like I didn't show a lot of skill and technique. I, before I got talking to you, I was literally watching the fight. I was just dissecting. And those are a lot of things I really want to fix and make sure that I create good tendencies before I step back in the cage. Cause I know that I have what it takes to be an elite fighter. And I know I have what it takes to beat. A lot of these guys that are at the elite level, I just need to work my way back up there. That last yeah. loss maybe in my head is like the worst thing ever because it's another, it's my second loss on my record as a professional. And it's, you know, it's just, it's permanent. It's going to be there. It's not going to go away. And it happened at such a point where if I win this fight, I get a shot at the UFC and things are going to be great. And it just didn't happen that way. I lost mm-hmm. the fight, lost opportunities, other opportunities outside of fighting just in general things did not go well and it drove me down to a really deep dark place where i felt like i I think i did question do i want to fight again do i want to fight still do i have what it takes everyone gets to these deep dark places with some things right Mm -hmm. sometimes they don't want to admit it or you don't admit it to yourself it takes a lot of strength to admit it and man i came out to the other side what the fuck am i talking about Mm -hmm. yeah hell yeah i want to do this hell yeah i'm still gonna do this hell yeah i'm still a beast Hell yeah, I can still fuck guys up. There's no, that loss has happened. Even though I, I didn't feel like I, I put five, in my opinion, I put five rounds out of, five rounds out on, on, on UFC Fight Pass fighting that I don't feel like was what I, in my head, I envisioned myself doing. So all I'm doing now is I want to go back to work so that the next time I put something on film, it's going to look a lot better. And I think that comes from hard work and, and, and time. You can't get something to just be perfect or the way you want it overnight. Mm-hmm. My coach, we, we talk and we get each other. And for him, he said to me, like, we have a vision of what we think we want to be or what we're capable of, but we're not at that part. We're not at that vision yet. We're not physically mm-hmm. there because we haven't done the work. We haven't physically put 
time in to get to that point. And so to me, I realized I had an epiphany. He's 100% right. I'm not thinking about the micro level of my stance and where I put my hands and how much, how busy I am with my feet and what kind of training I'm doing and how much practice I'm doing. and All these little things, you're like, we wonder why we don't succeed in the things we like. We don't look as good as we want because it's okay. I'm not putting in the proper time to these mm-hmm. micro things to grow. I'm just doing busy work. Mm-hmm. And a lot of my career, I just did busy work, just trained to get be in shape. I want to be a beast. I want to be in shape. But I feel like I'm at a point now where I can just focus on improving and it's at a very different level than it was before because I'm learning from great fight minds here. I have great fighters, world-class fighters around me that I can pick their brains and I see them doing it. Now I'm really excited for next time I fight and just going to keep growing as a fighter. When your MMA career is over, what would you like to have accomplished? Oh man, become world champion. Yeah, major organization, UFC or Bellator or one. I would also, I'd just love to have in general a a prosperous, successful career with Mm -hmm. good wins and fights that people will watch years from now. I look at it more like Becoming a champion is a product of what I do. And so if I do enough good things, I will hopefully become competing for the championship belt and becoming champion in one day. But first I have to put a lot of good products out. And I feel like those good products are going to be the ones that are going to leave a stamp on my legacy. And so my goal is to just improve as a fighter in all areas so that when I go out there, I continue to put on exciting fights. And I put on fights that people say, I want to watch that again. I can watch that five years from now and yeah. I can watch that 10 years from now and I can show my kids that that's the kind of, that's the kind of fight I want to put on. And that's the kind of fighter I want to be. And so mixed martial arts is my kind of sport because I like to mix everything up. I like wrestling. I like jujitsu. I like striking. I like switching stances. I like all this stuff. And so now I'm finally getting to the point where I can truly do all of it and feel confident in all of it. And yeah, I'm, I'm excited, man, just to continue to build my legacy. And hopefully one day when I retire, I'll hopefully open up a gym and create world champions. I'll get the same reward out of becoming a world champion or creating world champion. And I feel like I could drive guys through walls with the right, with the right build. And I'm excited for that point in my life. So I'm excited for when I build my legacy and then I can retire and I can create other guys' legacies. I want to switch gears so people can get to know you a little bit better as a person. How about when you need to clear your mind or recharge your body, what do you do? Oh man, when I need to clean my mind and recharge my body, I hang out with my puppy. I got a puppy here now. Yeah. What's your dog's name? Nas. Nas. Awesome. So hang Nas, out with yeah. Very cool. How about what's the first 60 minutes of your day look like? How do you start your day or end your day? Most high performers have a routine. No, I, I like to I like to start doing more routines in the morning, but I usually wake up, I do a couple stretches, and then I t- let take the dog out, feed him, and I have a couple some supplements that I do in the morning element. Actually, uh, Elemental Labs have been doing that in the morning just to help get the sodium and everything in my body right away. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I just do some breathing exercises. I, so I have a morning you know, routine with a shake, proper shake, proper stuff in my body so that I have the energy and it's, and it's I feel good, clean energy throughout the whole training session. Prep everything for after training, prep all my stuff. And then I usually do my breathing exercises on the way to the gym. And then I get to the gym early and I do my warm-ups, do my warm-ups, my stretches, do a nice routine. I think I've been slacking on it lately and I need to get back to doing a longer routine, but I have privates usually in the morning too beforehand. How many hours do you train in a day? So every, so at least a minimum of two hours, let's say two and a half hours, including warm-up, two and a half hours a, a day. And then depending on, we have multiple sessions, it could be three to four hours. Uh, mm-hmm. If you have a fight coming up, it could be more. It could be if you have recovery, you have recovery afterwards. I have recovery usually every... Day I do something. 
mm-hmm. for recovery afterwards, whether it's physical therapy or after a strength yeah. conditioning session, I'll do something else as well. Pretty much, I'd say full, like in an, almost like nine to five or yeah, I'd say nine to five or eight to four, I'm doing stuff for the. What's your personal definition of success? Personal definition of success is achieving goals that you set out for yourself. What's your main goal? My main goal is to be a successful fighter, to have a prosperous career where I can make money and eventually raise a kid and raise a family to be able to carry on my legacy. Success to me will be have a prosperous, good career to achieve my goals in fighting, yep. leave a legacy to be able to make money to provide for my family and be able to not have them struggle yep. and uh, eventually to bring on next generation the proper way. Sounds like a plan. What advice would you have for some a young kid just jumping into the MMA world and just say, this is what I want to do. What would you tell that person? Take your time, practice properly, and find a way to have love for what you're doing every day. If you could go back and talk to your mom and dad around that dinner table when you were 10 years old, what would you want to tell them? Oh, man. I would tell them that I see that you busted your butt for us your whole lives just so that we can live a better life. And I'm not going to let that go unwasted. And I promise to carry on your legacy in any way I can so that you're remembered as great parents. Uh, That's awesome. Last question. If you had to get a quote or a tattoo on your body, what would that quote or motto say? I have already that on my body. <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> I don't have a quote. I have, uh, I guess it would be the meaning of my name. My name is, well, so in Arabic, it's pronounced Basil, but everyone calls me Basil. <laughs> but Basil in Arabic means, uh, cur- it has a meaning of cur- uh, brave and courageous. So I actually have on my arm tattooed in Arabic, brave and courageous on my inner bicep, because I feel like in all situations, if I become, if I make sure I'm brave and courageous, that I will not, that I will, I will end up successful and that I'll be able to achieve my goals. Brave and courageous. I think that is a perfect place to wrap it up. Basil Hafez, thank you for joining. It's been an honor, man. I appreciate you sharing your story. Oh yeah, man. I appreciate you having me. I appreciate being on here and I had a great conversation. If people are looking for you online, where can they find you on social media? So I don't really use Facebook that much anymore. I don't have Twitter, but I have Instagram at Basil underscore Badre, which at B-A-S-I-L underscore B-A-D-R-E. And uh, it's a picture of me taking somebody in the head. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, follow me there. Other than that, follow my career as well. Hopefully I'll be on ESPN soon. Well, I wish you nothing but the best. Keep grinding, creep rocking, Basil. And thanks for joining us. It's awesome to see you. I wish you nothing but success in the future. My man, thank you, Joe. Appreciate thank you, Joe.